great one today. I've got Rob Avis coming on. We're going to be talking about the energy transition that's going on in the world and and what it's going to mean for you, your homestead, for all of us, for everyone, and what we can do to be prepared for it. And I don't think this really matters what your view of, let's say, renewables are. Like there are, there's a movement that's going on. There's a, there's policies and things in place that are going to create this transition whether or not you think we're ready for it. In fact, the less you think we're ready for it, maybe the more important what we're going to talk about today is. And I'll bring Rob on in just a moment. I have to say I haven't had the good pleasure of talking to Rob since Permaculture Voices, and I think probably around 2014. It might have been uh, the first or second one. I'm not really sure. It's been so long. I thought I had Rob on the show before, but I think that was a mistake. But I am looking forward to having him on the show now. And we will bring him on in just a minute. Before we do that, let us remind you about our sponsors. Sponsor today, number one today, BulkAmmo.com. Hey, do you know what uh, getting your Bitcoin off the exchange and, and ammunition have in common? Nobody ever takes it seriously until there's a problem. Yeah, like, you know, the Binance uh, lawsuit is also everybody's taking their, their crypto off the exchange. The same thing with ammo happens. Like people, like they don't worry about stocking up on ammo. Then there's some new bills or something. And all of a sudden it all gets pulled out. Plenty of ammo in supply right now. Lightning fast shipping from our long-term partner, Bulk Ammo. More than 10 years, these guys have been a sponsor of the show. Check them out today. And uh, remember, they do a discount for MSB members. And they are just a fantastic supporter of the show for a very long time. Next up today, this fits right in with what we're talking about. I didn't even know this was coming. John Bush got in touch with me yesterday. John Bush, of course, expert council member, longtime friend of the show, community member. I've worked with him on a bunch of things. He has a new solar DIY workshop coming up. You can attend in person or virtually. The in-person will be down in Bastrop, Texas. This is going to be awesome. It's cheap. It's 57 bucks, So it's not expensive at all. Uh, it's being run by uh, one of their, their great folks that are part of their team down there, Nomad Brad, who actually lives with John and Rebecca on their homestead. He's an awesome dude. And this is going to be a great workshop showing you everything you know need to know to build your own small-scale solar system. And if you can build a small one, you can upsize to a much larger one. So check this out. 57 bucks and you're in. It's that simple. And with that, let's go ahead and uh, bring our special guest, Rob, back onto the Survival Podcast. How you doing there, Rob? Hey, Jack. Nice to see you. Hey, I'm glad to have you on. Uh, before we dig into the topic du jour, let's talk about who, who and what is a Rob Avis. So um, you're well known in the permaculture space. And uh, but there's people that probably, you know, maybe they've tuned in and they've never heard of a Rob Avis before and they want to know what you're all about. What I always like to kind of leave this off with is how did you get where you are? Generally, kids aren't sitting in high school, spacing out in study hall and going, gee, when I grow up, I'm going to be a permaculture designer or, you know, I'm going to work in preparedness or I'm going to work in alternative energy. They're usually thinking about something totally different. And somewhere along the way, something in the path causes a turn and you end up in a space like this. So. Take us through that. How's that work out for you? Yeah, it's the last uh, place that I ever thought I uh, I was going to end up. I actually grew up in a cake factory 
Uh, my dad had a 40,000 square foot cheesecake facility. We produced anywhere from 50 to 100,000 cakes a day. So I come from industrial food and wow. uh, went to university to become a mechanical engineer. I thought I was going to design cake equipment and uh, ended up taking a job in the oil and gas industry. Um, so I was in industrial energy for many years as I got my professional designation. And I was the guy that uh, basically, once the well was drilled, uh, brought the pipeline and the facility together. Uh, so I was a facilities engineer. I would take down massive swaths of forest uh, and bring the oil and the gas to customers. And uh, I ended up kind of taking another course while I was in the oil and gas industry on environmental design and learned about peak oil, which got me really concerned because I started doing the math in my head around uh, how much energy we require for everything. Like the average calorie of food is anywhere from 15 to 20 calories of hydrocarbon that go into it. In the 1940s, just to kind of wrap that, that stat up with something else, um, we transitioned from having a food system that was uh, a net energy provider to being an energy sink. So in the 1940s, the average calorie of energy going in would yield three calories of food out. And now it's 20 out for, sorry, 20 in for one out. Anyways, I started kind of really going down that rabbit hole. And given that I'm an engineer and I understand numbers and energy, uh, I couldn't avoid it anymore. And I didn't really know what to do about it. And sure enough, Lawton's video, Greening the Desert, showed up in my inbox one day. And I called my wife, who was also a petroleum engineer, uh, and said, we got to leave our jobs and travel the world. So we spent six months at a renewable energy institute in Denmark um, because we understood energy. And we got a really good sense of, of the fact that humanity could move to a renewable energy infrastructure. Um, that was possible. It was technically feasible. But there wasn't really a lot of thought that we found anyways in, our, in the early parts of our exploration around food and so we came back to north america we hopped into our volkswagen which i had converted over to uh, run on plant oil and we drove down the baja uh, we were going to go right through central america and the u.s uh, but mexico is way bigger than it appears on the map and so we just studied agriculture in canada u.s and mexico for about six months uh, then we came back to calgary I traveled to go spend six months with Lawton and uh, and travel through Australia and go to as many different places as I could there. Uh, ended up traveling to um, Africa, Europe, um, and basically just learning everything, permaculture, renewable energy, alternative technology, appropriate technology, I should say. And uh, when we finally finished all that traveling, ended up starting Verge Permaculture and started teaching up here in the Texas of the North, which is Alberta. Um, and I think that the piece that that I think really defined uh, and like why I really attached to this concept of permaculture was that um, I couldn't criticize the oil industry because I was dependent upon it as a consumer. Um, and so going around and being kind of a negative environmentalist didn't really sit well with me because it's like I depend upon the food that this oil brings, I depend upon the transport that it brings and the heat in our minus 40 climate where Fahrenheit and Celsius become friends. Like it gets really cold up here. And so how do I sit here on my, you know, high horse criticizing the very industry that I also require as a consumer. And so permaculture was this solutions, at least the, the style of permaculture that I learned, there's different styles out there, but it was very solutions oriented um, 
not you know full of complaining and and like action oriented and and just kind of get in and start figuring out solutions and so here we are 14 years later um and uh with thousands of students having come through our programs and uh, feeling um, like i think and you probably agree with this but the best thing that ever happened as a result of all the instruction is is for every dollar i have in the bank i have ten thousand in relationships um, and now i'm surrounded by incredible practically minded people that actually get shit done. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with that in a bunch of ways too. Like, yes, there's a tremendous amount of value in social capital that comes from this. The other thing is, is natural capital. Like mm. there's a tremendous amount of value on my little three acre Rocky property that mm -hmm. no tax assessor can figure out how to tax. Right. No. Like there's, there's thousands upon thousands of dollars in value in environmental improvement in the ability of ourselves to feed ourselves, to take care of our animals. And uh, it's what Toby Hemingway uh, used to call liberation permaculture, right? There are these ways that we can liberate ourselves from the system while we're sitting in the middle of the system. And, yeah. and the other thing that got me, there's two things that got me about your discussion. One was the mention of greening the desert from Jeff. I don't know how many, and I, I think you're talking about going that little far back. You're talking about yeah. the crappy one with like the picture of yeah. him leaning like, like uh, Gene Wilder in uh, Chocolate yeah. Factory, you know, or something yeah. like that. And like, there's, there's no even, it's like all animation. It was terribly done. Terrible. But it just made me sit here and go, I got nothing to complain about. I got zero to bitch about. Like I, I, and I had been on the air talking about how hard it was to grow food in North Central Texas. Like I got nothing anymore. I just got to get with it. And the other thing is your story is actually in a way very similar to Bill Mollison's. Hmm. And Bill as permaculture's co-founder at one time worked in the forest, cutting down giant trees. Hmm. And he said one of his seminal moments was talking to all the people that he was working with. He was really young, older guys on the crew. And did anybody that did this job for a living own a house? And none of these men who were cutting down trees to build housing primarily owned a house. Hmm. And he realized this was completely ridiculous. Whereas you were working in the petrochemical industry and to do what needs to be done to to harvest that resource, you know, you're felling trees. And I think there's actually a lot of people in permaculture that come from backgrounds very close to industrial process. Mm. Uh, I think of uh, Bill. I can't think of his last name now. Is it Wilson? Bill uh, from the Midwest. Who was a truck Zedek? worker. Sorry. Was it Bill Zedek? No. Um, he, he, he runs a company up. It's somewhere in the Midwest in Illinois, and I've had him on the show a couple of times. Bill, and the name just went, and once that happens, if you keep chasing it, it won't come back. You know, he was a truck driver. He drove a diesel truck for 20 years. Yeah. And there's just, I think, something about being the closer you get to that. I'm from a coal mining family. Right. I grew up where I watched this stream that ran between Pottsville and Minersville. It was bright orange and slimy from the sulfur oxide in it. And I remember wow. my grandfather talking about brook trout that were over two foot long running up at every fall like salmon because they were spawning. And I thought he was nuts, you know, and I watched as some things were done, actually clean that up. The brook trout come back, hmm. you know, and, and I, I think that the more you see like that, like where I grew up, I think you actually saw you might have saw my presentation, the last bit voices where I had the, the coal slush dams that were around us and like nothing. It's 100 years and still nothing grows in it. I think the more you see of that the more impetus you have like to do something about mm -hmm. it and all of the modern politics can be let go. You can just look at that type of damage. You know, when you cut down a thousand acres of farmers, you've done, you've done something wrong. 
right? You've messed something up. You know when we're exporting more topsoil by ton than anything else the country exports. You know there's a problem. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a political thing. And I think that, the, again, the closer you are to those things, if you ever have that wake-up moment that, like, wow, um, yeah, I, and, and, I, and then you get that same thing. Like, I can't sit here and bitch and keep participating 100% and not do anything to try to step outside. Yeah. There's two things that you said there. Um, the first one was when you're talking about natural capital, um, you know, your food forest is kind of like the ultimate version of proof of work and proof of, of stake in a way. And uh, and I know you talk a lot about crypto. And so um, that's the thing that just came to me. But have you ever read the book uh, Rewealth? No. OK, so um, one thing that you were saying there was like, you know, you can't feel sorry for yourself and be a victim and, and yeah. uh, you, you just got to get out there and do it. And that's absolutely true. I can't stand victim mentality. But um, the thing that really struck me with this book, Rewealth, which I think you'd really resonate with, is that it's even better than not being a victim. It's actually being an entrepreneur, which is the presentation that I actually sat through at uh, Permaculture Voices of yours when you were selling USB sticks, when information still had value. Um, and um, the, the the whole premise behind Rewealth was this guy who grew up in a brick factory and uh, he didn't want to, to, to make bricks. And so he left uh, his dad's factory to go get an MBA. And uh, halfway through his MBA, his dad ended up dying. Just real quick, is that the book right there, Rob? Yeah, you bet. Okay, go ahead. And uh, and so his dad passed away and he had to take the, the family business over. So he came back and, and uh, the business wasn't doing great. And so he's like, okay, well, at least I'll use some of my MBA techniques to turn this business around. And he did that and he made some, you know, improved cash flow and everything else. Um, but he was really interested in stranded assets and specifically like assets that nobody wants anything from. Uh, so really kind of tying into this, this is where it ties back into permaculture. The problem is a solution. And uh, and so he, he was really interested in real estate specifically. And I can't remember which city it was in, but he found this really great piece of, of real estate that was in a prime location, but it was brownfield. So it was super degraded, toxic. Nobody wanted it. And, and if you know much about cities, when they have a brownfield site, the cities don't have any money. So they wait for a developer for the real estate value to go up high enough for a developer to come in and get rid of the toxic mess and usually put a skyscraper there. Um, and then they can kind of uh, move the, the cost of cleanup to you know the thousand units that go into this skyscraper or condo. And, uh, and so he brought the best environmental people in and he said, uh, okay, so I want to buy this piece of property and, um, you know, what do I have to do to clean the mess up? And so the environmental guys, you know, did their assessment and uh, they said, well, there's really only two things you should do, but by the way, don't buy it. And they said, the first thing you can do is <clears throat> dig and dump, which is a common practice in the oil patch and, and all over every industrial Superfund site, uh, which doesn't get uh, addressed is, is a dig and dump scenario. And then the, the, he said, the other thing you could do, but it's really expensive is to incinerate the soil. And he said, Oh, perfect. I'm buying it. And, and the funny thing with these stranded assets, and this is the power of, of regeneration, if you know how to do it, is that let's say the, the liability on the land is a million dollars. You can go to the person that holds the liability and say, Give me eight hundred thousand, so I'll give you a two hundred thousand uh, dollar discount on the liability. So you get eight hundred grand for it, and, and so you get a little bit of cash to get going, and then you can, and then you get the land. So somebody's paid you to take their liability. You get this beautiful piece of commercial real estate for eight hundred thousand dollars, 
So what does he do? He sets up a brick factory, which is exactly what Musk is doing right now with hmm. the um, with the boring tunnel boring company is he's removing the soil from the ground, turning it into compressed earth bricks and then selling it. So somebody's paying to build his tunnels because he's selling a building material, which is like permaculture all over. So he builds this brick factory next to this property, starts incinerating earth, which is how you make bricks. And then he is able to, you know, capitalize on the incredible commercial value of this property. And so this embodies everything about permaculture. It's like we're not victims. We're actually uh, opportunistic. We're, we're fast carbon pathways that move into problems. And we use really simple, I mean, what is permaculture? It's, it's basically ecological engineering, except that we have a different, we have a solution set of a mindset. And so now when you look at the world through that lens, um, of stranded assets and just it's all about creating connections um, all of a sudden the world is your oyster and you just have to go out and find problems and try and create solutions and everybody wants to work with you that's that's pretty awesome way to look at things that that, that is an embodiment of the problem is the solution like how do we take these things that are environmental problems and turn them into profitable environmental solutions that, that that's incredibly important there's so there's a bent in the permaculture space, and I know you've, you've experienced it, of this idea that, you know, making a profit is bad as though obtaining yield is not a permaculture principle. And that things that are profitable are also sustainable. And, and if they continue to be profitable without devaluing the underlying component, the underlying resource, they become infinitely sustainable because you can, you know, the reason I've been doing a podcast for 15 years, is I can make a living doing it. Yeah. If I couldn't make a living doing it, I couldn't do it for 15 hours. I couldn't put out five shows a week and run. You know, I guess I did it for a couple of years, but that was pretty unsustainable. I was like at the end of, you know, burning the candle on both ends really hard when I was doing that for the first year and a half. And uh, so it and, and it had to have like division forward. There is a way to take this into a full time business. So we need to be able to do both. But that's a good transition into kind of the first thing I have on the dock for you here of. Uh, Explaining when we look at systems, systems that are degenerative, um, sustainable, and regenerative. Because sustainable is the buzzword, but sustainable, it it can mean what people think it means, but it usually doesn't. I mean, Paul Wheaton says it means barely holding on, you know, often, like, that would be sustainable. Um, I think there's some overlap there, but there are three different categories. Uh, can you kind of explain your view of those? Yeah. And, and before profit kind of ties into it, like no ecosystem would operate without profit. I mean, there needs sure. to be a surplus. We would be living on Mars without the concept of, of profit. And I mean, there's there's definitely a, you know, there's a right, right and a wrong way to do all of that stuff. But profit's not a bad thing. And um, I, I don't know how these people expect to, to get educated on these things or hire people if there's no money involved. Um, money is just it's like exudates from roots. It's a form of energy exchange and um, it's not it's 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 values neutral. Um, but um, and so the degenerative paradigm is essentially like, how do we get more stuff, um, you know, at any cost? And we do so by um, and it ties nicely into some of the crypto stuff that you talk about. But um, it's essentially the accumulation of, of resources um, without accounting for externalities. And so the whole premise of um, trying to uh, attain more wealth um, while leaving a wake of destruction behind you. 
And the degenerative paradigm is what's actually facilitated the creation of the sustainable paradigm. And there's different ways to kind of couch sustainable. I think Toby Hemingway did a really great job when he said that, you know, um, if, if you have a crappy marriage and somebody uh, comes up and say, hey, how's your marriage doing? And you say, well, you know, it's kind of sustainable. Nobody wants to be in a sustainable marriage. Um, that's a, a, a shitty situation to be in. But um, I think it's actually worse than that. Um, the sustainable paradigm is built out of out of the, this narrative or belief pattern that um, we've all thought about, but most of us have never put words to. Like it's in it's on our, your socials. It's in the well, if there's any newspapers around anymore, it's in the newspapers and magazines. Um, it's on our radio shows. It's on television. This this narrative um, that's it's just below the surface, and it's the most negative thing on earth right now. Um, it's that humans are inherently destructive. And when people hear those those words, they're like, oh, yeah, that's what they're saying. Like, we're, we're actually just a virus on the planet. It's like it was in the Matrix. Like, it was part of yeah. the Matrix narrative. And so the people that are espousing the sustainable paradigm are basically of this belief that um, humans are inherently destructive and at best we can we can be neutral. So you, you hear this in the words we, we talk about in the construction industry, net zero building, zero escaping. Mm-hmm. Um, reduce your footprint like and the word reduce is really important and the word footprint is really important and how those words come together um, it, it creates very interesting psychological thought patterns in your head and um, and I think Mollison really hit the nail on the head with this when he said everything gardens like I didn't understand that for a very long time but um, and the, and if you combine that with Newton's um, philosophy that for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction we can't help but have a footprint on this planet it's like the only way to eliminate your footprint is to kill yourself um, and if you take the sustainable paradigm to its logical conclusion we have to get rid of all the humans on planet earth but if you believe that we are of this earth that we are a biological entity that we have a footprint and you're not ashamed about your footprint then the regenerative paradigm is how do we turn every footprint into something that is positive? So if the most negative thing on the earth is the nuclear bomb, what's the most positive thing? And so it's it's a, an acceptance of the fact that we're human. We're of this ecosystem. We create a footprint. And the in fact, like every species on this planet has uh, innate genetic um characteristics so if you look at a bird uh nasim taleb and anti-fragile talks about how they're genetically programmed to fly like you don't have to put them into a classroom to teach them how to fly they just know how to do it it's part of their survival mechanism um and so i have two kids and when we were living in the city i would watch my kids every day and like what's what's the innate thing that humans do like if if it's flying for birds what are the things that humans do Humans are entropy generation machines. And you can see this in the way that kids act. Like we had to create a chaos corner for our kids so they didn't destroy our garden and and, and our whole property. And it's like, if you guys want to play outside, here's your little Tonka toys. You can destroy this part of the garden. Everything else is ours. Yeah. And so um, entropy is also, entropy is like the measure of chaos. And so you talked about the coal mines and these like sludge ponds and all, and like destruction of these rivers. Um, Every ecosystems and human beings, um, we're anti-fragile. And so what that means is that when we apply the right footprint, the right amount of disturbance into a system, we can make it better. If we don't apply any disturbance, the system atrophies. And if we, if we apply too much, it gets, it gets destroyed. 
Too much um, or the wrong kind. Either exactly. or, right? Wrong time, wrong scale, wrong yeah. place. Like, yeah, the timing's uh, important too. That's a valid point, Rob. That like you can do the right thing at the wrong time and exactly. cause a problem. Jeff talks about that when he talks about chop and drop, and somebody just sees it and then does it in the wrong season, and you create scorched earth because you did your chop and drop in the dry season. Absolutely, at the peak heat. Like that's yep. not the time to do it. You want rainfall over evaporation when you chop and drop. Totally. Yep. And so we can apply that to all those things: business, huh. uh, ecologies. And so the regenerative paradigm is actually an embodiment of what it means to be human. So it's a humanist concept. It's like, no, no, we're up to this planet. We can be just as good as we are bad. We can create money. And being creating money doesn't mean that we're creating destruction. Um, it's just we're creating value. It's just in different ways. And, uh, and so it's a positivistic look at um, how we occupy this earth and, and how we choose to, to collaborate with the living systems around us. Um, and it's crazy how many people come into our PDCs and we explain this to them. One of the first things they do is go, go get a, uh, a bacon and lettuce sandwich if they're vegan. Um, it, you know, if they've been eating vegetables because they are, are of this sustainable paradigm. There's lots of reasons to be vegan or vegetarian, but a lot of them choose to do that because they're mourning the condition of the planet and they don't realize that that they actually have an enormous amount of power to make change. Um, it's all about um, how you hold yourself in the world and, and, and where you put your life energy. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There, you know, I often sympathize with vegans, even though I'm not one and will never be one because what they bring up about totally. the treatment of animals and CAFOs and the waste stream problem that those things create, they're a hundred percent right. Absolutely. But we don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. And I, I can't fix the, uh, the treatment of the animal at a CAFO, but I could even fix the waste stream problem, right? I could fix that with permaculture. Like, yeah. um, so even that could be better than it is. And I, I think a lot of people do kind of have this wake up moment where I don't have to walk around with ashes and sackcloth on to be part of the solution. And, I, and that, yeah. that's what I love about permaculture. Um, but I think we do have a very unpredictable future, uh, especially with energy. And there's people that believe that there's way more oil and gas than, than claimed. There's people that think there's less than claimed. There's people that think this transition's coming because we're going to run out. Personally, I think the quantity is less important than the reality of the movement of society. That there is an agenda that this transition shall happen, whether you think it's good or bad, whether you think we're ready to do it or not, like it's coming. And I think that there's a, a number of things. One will be availability of energy, but two will be, and I guess it ties into availability, cost. And I think we're all going to have to deal with that. Maybe some of us will be insulated a bit and deal with it a little later in time. But across the grand scheme of time, it's quick. And so what are some of the things you think people can do to kind of prepare for that, to insulate themselves, to rather than try to just get more, not need it. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, Taleb's ideas here are really valuable because um, the people that think there's an unlimited amount of energy and that build their lives around that, um, if you're wrong, it's catastrophic. Um, if you make change and use less or figure out how to design it out of the system and you're wrong, you just end up living a life that costs less money. You have a higher quality of life in the end. 
um, if you do it in the right way. But I think there's a couple of, of kind of uh, thought experiments that we can give people to think about. So if you've got a jar of food for a specific type of microbe and it has one hour of food in it okay. and the microbe doubles every minute, um, how long until 50% of the food is consumed? There's one hour of, of food in there and, and it doubles in size every minute. How long before you've used 50% of that resource up? Probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 minutes. I mean, I, 50, I don't really know. 59 minutes. Okay, 59 minutes. Okay. 50% of the resource is used. And yeah, in the last minute. Sense. It's going to double and consume. Yeah. Yeah. And then how much food do you have to, if you add double the food in, how much time did you just buy yourself? One more minute. One more minute. And so then in order to get a minute after that, you have to four times the food. Yeah. So nobody knows when that 59th minute is right now in society. So that's the first thing. There's another thought experiment that I heard recently from a physicist, and he actually wanted to do some calculations around what a 3% growth rate means if you project it further out into the future. And he wanted to use some ridiculous numbers. So he said, um, how long at our current growth rate will it take for us to require a Dyson sphere around the the sun? Okay. So, um, At our current 19 terawatt society, which is the amount of energy we consume on a daily, like an, on a second by second basis, that's terawatt is an energy flow rate. So the amount of energy per second, <clears throat> we would require uh, a Dyson sphere around the sun within 400 years. And we don't know how to do it, number one. And number two, we don't uh, have enough materials in the no. solar system to build it. No. No. Um, he said, yeah. let's take this thought experiment even further. He said, if you kept growing at a 3% growth rate, you would require all the energy in the galaxy within 1,200 years from today. Okay. Um, and so it doesn't like the, the, like, are we running out of oil conversation is kind of silly because it, it, like, if you're a humanist and, and you're thinking into the, for future generations, seven generations down the road, um, at some point we reach the 59th minute. And then the entire infrastructure collapses because it, and like price won't solve that problem um, because of another concept called energy return on energy invested. And so in the early days in Saudi Arabia, uh, every barrel of oil that we put in to extract oil, we got 20,000 out. Um, there's something like 500 billion energy slaves on Earth right now that are powering us with the 100 million barrels of oil that we're consuming per day. Every single North American has anywhere from 100 to 150 energy slaves working for them just through oil and gas. Um, and now shale oil, um, which is what... Let's pause right there because there's some people that that just went right over. You might think he's talking about the roughnecks out in the oil field. What he means is the amount of energy that you're able to access because of this system is equivalent to that much human labor. Yeah. Just to be clear. Go ahead, Rob. Yeah, and just to kind of illustrate this point, I have a Honda Pilot. Um, it's a lean, mean uh, dragster machine, um, and you know I think it's got like a 3.8 liter engine in it. Yeah, and running that thing at 60 miles an hour down the highway is equivalent to ha- like I need 800 people on spin bikes, yeah. um, on a trailer behind me to operate that car at 60 miles an hour. That's the amount of energy that that's embodied in oil, um, and so. Shale oil right now produces roughly six units of energy out for one unit of energy in. So from 20,000 units to one okay. to six units to one. 
Yeah. And some of the guys like Richard Tainter and um, Jared Diamond have said that you can't run a complex bureaucratic civilization on less than six to one energy return on energy invested. So we're, we're literally heading off of an energy cliff where we're having to put enormous amounts of energy in in order to get small amounts out. And so at some point, what happens is that civilization will start to simplify um, if we can't find replacements. And I know what everybody's thinking. We just had a fusion breakthrough. Well, that fusion breakthrough has two is, is approximately two units of energy out for one unit in. And so let's assume that they have a massive breakthrough and that things get way better than they are. Maybe they get to 100 to 1. You know, it's still not the 20,000 uh, units out for one unit in that we had uh, when we, that we first started, started with. That we built this whole thing based on that paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I also think there's this there's this belief that something will just come along and fix it all. Like there's just this fantasy belief, you know, and I think you see it in a cancer patient, you know, that, that doesn't not has not reached acceptance yet. That's terminal that, you know, they'll, somebody will say like, there's this new thing where they shoot shark pee in your nose in Mexico and they'll actually grab onto that belief because it's better than the reality. And I think we're, we're dealing with some of that right now uh, to a large degree. And I, at the same time, I don't think that means that the future is quite as bleak as we think, but it could be. No, it's all dependent on what we do with the knowledge that we have. So if if you were in a building and I, for for a fact, knew that somebody was going to run a giant piece of equipment into it and smash it down an hour from now, you kind of want me to tell you that. While you had time to not even freak out, just walk like, oh, this building's going to collapse. I don't want that, but I'm just going to get out. I'm just going to walk out. Like right now, I can even take the elevator, take my time, listen to some music on the way down and leave the building. But once the impact happens, if I'm still in the building, I have a real problem and a very low chance of survival at that point. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of a good metaphor for where we're at with society. Because when I do look at the, and I, I think that less, just instead of thinking oil and gas, like thinking resources, period. If you watch like sped up footage of just a typical port of ships coming and going, yeah. that's where you do start to look at the human race and go, My, we are locusts, hmm. right? We are just taking more than there is to take. Yeah. And then we come into this fantasy that, oh, well, it's going to all be fixed with electric cars or something like that. And so show me the rare earth metals that are being mined with machinery larger than my house where that machinery is running on solar energy, mm -hmm. right? That's not a thing. So we have, we're spending all this diesel to run these mining operations. And when we get, let us be clear too, after all that energy goes in, we're extracting an ore that uses a great amount of energy for refinement, produces a tremendous amount of waste, and then we have this very small amount comparative of rare, rare earth elements that gets parted out into these batteries and the different components into like solar and, and wind. And then we have an inefficient means of generating power at the end of all that. Yeah. And I, you know, like the, I guess the, the big fantasy and, and maybe there actually will be something that will come from us is something like helium three off the moon, mm. right? Like that, that's probably the most energy dense substance that's known in the universe right now. But it, even if you had the energy, you still have a, that's what I'm saying. Like you can only put so much of this on the oil and gas side. 
you still have a resource issue. If you want wood, a tree has to die or at least be set back for a coppice, right? Mm -hmm. If you want to eat, then something has to be grown. And if Mm -hmm. you're eating meat, then something had to be grown for the meat to eat, right? Like there's this resource issue that I think it's missed when we only focus on the energy side. Totally. And and, and so just to build a little bit more on that, there's a gentleman named Dr. Simon Michaud, um, and he's done a couple of podcasts recently. He works for the Finnish Geologic Survey. And he said, okay, let's just look at society for the way that it is. It's a 19 terawatt society. It's growing at 3% per year. What would it take to completely replace and allow us to continue to grow the current 19 terawatt civilization that we've got if we were to replace all the fossil infrastructure with renewables wind solar batteries 9,000 years of extraction at the current rate for lithium uh, 2,000 or some years for copper uh, and that's assuming there is even enough of that on earth Um, and he went through all of the rare earth metals that you've just talked about and there's literally either not enough capacity to do it um, or not enough materials on earth and so again it's one of these kind of thought experiments that um and, and and before people start getting really depressed about all of this, like it, there is a good future in front of us if we choose to accept it, but it requires us to um, kind of contain our lifestyles within what's possible with what with regards to what's on this earth. Maybe Elon will figure out asteroid mining and, and figure out how to bring rare earth metals back down to earth. Who knows? He seems to be not concerned about materiality and, and material limits when you listen, but he doesn't ever give any backup that I've heard anyways yeah. on, on where that comes from. Um, and so for me anyways, I'm thinking about my kids and my, and hopefully my kids' kids. Um, I'm definitely pro having children. Um, and so trying to set our property and infrastructure up so that they have a chance of being able to live in this cold ass climate up here in Canada um, with a relatively high quality of life Um you know, into the future. And, uh, and so being a little bit proactive, like you said, let's get out of the building. And by the way, there's lots of great ways to build other buildings that mm-hmm. are less susceptible to, to these disasters. Yeah, I would completely agree. Um, what are some practical steps people can take? Like what can they do on their property right now? Or if they're looking for a property, what should they be thinking about doing? And, and cause that can make a big difference on property selection. Well, it's interesting. Um, so goals is something that everybody talks about. So you got to get clear on those. And I, and I think that there's not much um, new to say about that other than, you know, make sure that you and your spouse um, are on the same page um, or whoever you're partnering with. Um, that, it's amazing how often when we come in and consult for people that that isn't true. Like they're mm-hmm. one person's concern and the other person isn't. And and so you end up they fight, fight each other to try and figure out which direction to go. <laughs> Um, if you can't get on the same page, um, you need to do that. There's not much, there's not, it's like, that's, you got to stop there. Um, but the first thing that we typically do with clients after they've got their goal set is um, like the risks that you and I are talking about may not be the risks that other people are concerned about. And yeah. the other thing is because of how complex reality is um, like, and, and how simple our brains are, uh, so to speak, we see a version of reality. There's, there's this great book I just read called Deviate by Bo Lotto. And he talks about how um, the human, every human brain perceives reality a little bit differently. And your perception of reality is based upon your past. And so the traumas, 
the joys, all the things that you grew up with inform how you see reality around you. And that would also inform how the risks that you're most concerned about. I'm an energy engineer originally, and so I see three things through an energy lens. Um, Joel Salatin sees things through a food lens. Um, and a finance person would see things through a finance lens. And so everybody's got their own kind of risk set that they're trying to um, take care of. And when you think about a permaculture property or an off-grid homestead or whatever you want to call it, um, these are really just alternative insurance policies. They're, we're creating insurance for ourselves. And insurance is one of those things that um, if it's done properly, it should benefit you in the present. Um, and also in the event that something bad happens. And so they're asymmetric um, investments. So a property is a great version of this because we can actually add value to the property. If we ever have to divest, get our money back, we can liquefy it. Um, and in the event that something bad happens, if we've designed it properly, it'll feed us, it'll heat us, um, it'll shelter us. And so the first thing we do as consultants is we get a really clear understanding of, of what people are concerned about. Is it food security? Is it energy security? Is it water security? And then where you buy that property is going to also dictate some of those risks as well. Like you're going to have a different water situation in Texas than I do up here in Alberta. Sure. Um, so getting really clear on what risks you're concerned about so that if you are working with a consultant or you're working by yourself, you can say, well, I'm really concerned. I don't care about peak oil. Like I don't, I think Rob's out to lunch on that one, but food security is really important to me. And so that should start and think, get you thinking about like, well, what does food security mean to you? Is it, are you vegan? If you're vegan, there's nothing wrong with that. Go live in the tropics. That's the best place for a vegan to live. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and like eat all the food that they want in, in that format. Um, if you're living in the North, um, you know, Inuit was the, if you go really far North, like meat was the predominant caloric intake because that's all that's available. We for don't, the indigenous population. Yeah. Totally. Yep. And so the, your diet is a spectrum on the earth from the North all the way down to the equator. And so getting clear about what your diet wants to be and, and where you need to locate in order to create food security for that particular goal set. And the risk that you're trying to, to mitigate is, is very important. Um, once you know where you're going to live, then you can start to rank your property on very simple things that, that uh, Bill did a great job articulating in the, the permaculture design manual. So, you know, water, access, and structures, um, and then letting your land dictate what it naturally wants to become. Because if mm -hmm. you partner with your property, um, while there's always effort in permaculture, um, it's, it's that old farmer adage, like I'm sick of trying to keep things alive that want to die and killing things that want to live. Yeah. We want to, we want to focus our food systems around those weeds that want to live, that create abundance all on their own, more or less, um, to solve that particular problem set. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I've always thought like the easiest way to sell permaculture to people, and I don't mean directly as in for monetary change, but to sell them on the idea is is economics because no matter where you fall on that spectrum economics is still part of it so the person's like i don't give a that gun about peak oil would you like your electric bill to be half of what it is well yeah okay right or you know when they with food you know would you like to cut your grocery bill in half okay right would you like to eat better food for the same money okay like see that that's like a universal thing and what's funny to me is that I think people literally believe in like a magical solution to these problems 
but yet they act like what we offer with permaculture is like some sort of magic trick or something like it's the illusion, right? It's what's not real. Where I think this, this fantasy that someday this will all just go away. And I think it's easy to believe that I'm not picking on anybody because you've grown up your whole life. And to be fair to those people, there's a lot of hysteria. That's always a 10 year timeline. And I've seen that come and go three times in my life and I'm 50. So it probably happened before that. I just didn't care when I was 20. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, I've seen this happen. I've seen all these pronostications and stuff. So you can see where a person becomes very thick skinned to it and just says they either do one of two things. It's all bull. So I don't care. Or if it's true, what the hell can I do anyway? Mm-hmm. But if you can hit them right at home, like you're saying, find the things that are important to them, whether it's a specific resource they're concerned with a limit on or just straight up economics. Like, well, wouldn't you like to have more money? Okay, great. Well, what are your biggest expenses? I don't remember who said this, but long, long ago, someone that was kind of like, you know, a a motivational speaker, business, wealth advisor, something like that. And I don't even think they were talking in our world, but they made this very astute statement. If you, if, if we didn't have to eat, everybody would be rich because so much of our income goes to making sure that we can eat, that we feed our families, et cetera, so you you know most people have some little piece of land, whether it's a tenth of an acre in the suburbs, and they have no idea how much food could be produced and go straight against that home economic expense, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's the economics, and then there's the the food density. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you don't have to search very long to to find that there's literally no nutrition in our food anymore. Um, 90% of the United States and Canada, I don't have the stats for Canada to be very similar, but have uh, metabolic syndrome. And now they've linked metabolic syndrome to cancer, um, MS, uh, diabetes. And so like there literally isn't food for sale. And, and I mean, the other thing that goes against this, Jack, is that you walk into a Costco and the shelves are absolutely packed with shiny products that are relatively inexpensive. But they're they're filled with polyunsaturated fats um, and sugar. Um, I mean, it's basically just packaged cancer um, at that yeah. stage. And yeah. um, like you literally, the, the the best nootropic you can put into your body is whole food. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really what we're offering. It's like health, um, which is the ultimate thing. It's time. It's like how much time you. When I was back in the patch and I was looking at cutting a massive forest down, as Lawton's video came in. Being that I'm a nerd, I, I took out a calculator and it's like, we have 600,000 hours on this planet if we're lucky. That's the average lifespan of a human. And I'd burned through a third of them. Mm. And I was like, how do I want to spend the next two thirds of my life? Do I, do I want to keep gotcha. doing this? Uh, nothing wrong with it. It pays great and it's challenging and I, I love the people I work with uh, and I'm consuming it at the same time. Or do I want to try something different? And, um, it's not necessarily an easier path, but I can tell you it's very fulfilling um, if you can find out kind of where your passion lies within all of that. No, I, I completely agree with that. What do you think the biggest mistake people make when it comes to designing their properties? There's a few. I mean, if we're talking about rural properties, um, usually there isn't any design. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to say with urban properties, too, like that the yeah. homeowner does, right? Like, you know, the, the builder puts the lollipop tree and puts the fence up or whatever, the hardscape. But I think most people just kind of like throw shit out there. Yeah. They just throw things out. They don't really, I mean, like the typical landscape design, if it's not got any kind of direct um, motivation or goal behind it, 
we design our landscapes uh, in the same way that um, if you if you were to design a like to, to give a good example, everybody's every human is in, innately capable of design. Um, and I know this because when somebody walks into a house, if they don't like the kitchen, they start in their mind, they start criticizing. Well, why did they put the stove there and why did they put the kitchen there? But if we were to design our kitchens the way that we design our landscapes, most people, we'd have a sink in the kitchen, a stove up in the attic uh, and a fridge down in the basement. Um, you can't cook if you're constantly going up and down stairs trying to uh, get all this material and from different floors. And so um, in the same way that a good kitchen is designed around a work triangle, I mean, that's really what we're talking about is the proper placement of elements to minimize work because work is a failure in design. Um, so on, on an urban property, the, the nice thing with urban properties is that you're at least constrained by space. And so you, you're forced to kind of be a little bit more thoughtful um, the problem with rural properties is people get drunk on space and they put shit everywhere. And, um, and so like, you've got your compost pile over there and you've got your chicken coop over there and your gardens over there. Cause you, you know, it looks ugly. And the reason it looks ugly is cause it's over there and you don't want to manage it cause you're lazy cause we're all lazy. Um, and your compost pile stinks, which is why you put it over there, but it stinks because you put it over there and you weren't forced to smell it and actually learn how to compost. Um, and so just like some really basic, um, uh, like workflow, uh, time and motion studies, uh, understanding what things want sun, what don't like it's, it's actually, we, we make permaculture so complicated, but really at the end of the day, we can break it down to a few couple of a few things like everything on your property either wants water or doesn't want it. Um, everything on your property either wants sun or doesn't want sun or some variation in between, between the two. Um, and so, and water and sun are basically the two and wind, I guess, as well. But they would be like the two master elements that if you get the placement of things wrong from a water perspective, water has the ability to take life away and it also has the ability to create abundance. Um, and so when we start delineating our water on our property, how does water articulate on our property? Um, where does it go when it falls? Um, what, like a house doesn't want water, it wants to be high and dry. A road doesn't want water, it wants to be high and dry. And then most elements that don't want water actually generate water. Hmm. Um, and so then when they generate water, what elements can we place adjacent to those things that are going to benefit from it so that we don't have to pump water to them? And so there's like these really simple, like once you understand some very simple mechanisms that everybody can inherently understand once they see it and they touch it, um, all of a sudden it's like every property you go onto um, it, it becomes like almost mechanistic in, in, in a design approach because there's really only going to be one or two places for a house and there's only going to be one or two places for a greenhouse and one or two places for a garden. Um, they just kind of start designing themselves. And this, I used to tell my students, especially urban um, students, to walk down people's back alleys and like peek into people's backyards and, and like give themselves five minutes to design the property and just practice like, where would I put the rain tank? Where would I put the mm -hmm. garden? Where would I put mm -hmm. this? And you start getting really good at it uh, in really short order because it just starts workflows start to kind of appear to you. And um, do you know what I think is the magic of that though? And it's why I always advise the same thing. It's not yours. Yes. We have like I, I, it's like teacup syndrome. Like yeah. I'm special, but I'm yeah. my, but my but if you take especially if you've never actually designed a property for, if you go design a property that you have zero emotional attachment to. Totally. It's so easy to see, okay, well, the slope's this way. There's a shadow here. This is, this is where the, the, the morning sun is. This is where the afternoon sun is. This is how, how much space I have to work with. Uh, person in the house, you know, since I don't know them and I'm just 
doing this amount. I'm going to assume they eat eggs. So chickens or ducks will work in this system. They probably would be housed here. They're going to have to go, you know, service them every day. So there's this pathway. What am I going to do with that pathway? How can I share? And it's like, just, you're like, you look at your own property. You're like, you're like, you know, the kid that didn't study. Yeah. You know, and you're taking a final exam and you're sitting there drooling on your pencil and you can't (laughs) see it because you get in this mental vapor lock. But this is mine. And so it's it's probably the same reason they don't let surgeons operate on their own children or something Mm -hmm. like that. Like you get too emotionally vested. So if you can become dispassionate, Vulcan like in your state of design, then you can look at your own property and go, let's pretend I don't live here. Right. Or let's let's create like an artificial version of myself so I can interview myself as a client. And I know what I like and what I don't like and what I hate and how long I'm really going to work every week. And then let me dispassionately step out of myself and design the flow because everybody's susceptible to it. I did it here. I got yeah. three acres and I went nuts on three acres. Thank God I didn't have 300. Yeah. You know, um, and now most of what I am productive on is actually would fit in a large urban yard. Yeah. Not a small one, but a large one. And then the rest of the properties pretty much banished for, you know, 50 ducks. They, they, they're the they're the keystone species yeah. on the property. Yeah, I, I love your duck series, by the way. I send that to everybody. It's so good. Um, it's amazing. Well, it's tricky. It's a cute little baby duck. Look, we're going to weigh it and see how much it grows. Let's talk about the hydrology of swells. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's it's designed to be a vortex sucking people into permaculture, you know? Yeah. If you're if you're listening to this right now and you haven't seen Jack's series on ducks, it's it's a few years ago now, but uh, it's it's incredible. It's worth every uh, Duck Chronicles, I think it was called, right? Yeah, DuckChronicles.com uh, will redirect to the YouTube playlist of all of it, and there's like four seasons. And it's the first two that are really like a lot of episodes. Yeah, you, you uh, changed my whole mindset on ducks with that that series. They, um, they they changed my mindset. People told me when I first started. Uh, building this property, and I want to get ducks. You don't want them. They're gonna make holes and compact everything. And I'm finally like, my wife's like, but I want ducks. If your wife wants something, you go to it. Got the ducks, brought them in, learned how to deal with their behaviors and their yeah. intrinsic characteristics, and like, this is the greatest thing ever. Like, yeah. and then the product they produce compared to a chicken's egg is, and they're to me they're better foragers and they do less disturbance. Yeah. If yeah. you understand the disturbance that they cause, right? Because if yeah. you don't move your water, that's what we we call duck creep. Right. They make duck creep. They, they, they pack that mud. But if you move them, man, they're just fantastic, agreeable little animals. Amazing. Yeah. The, the statement you just made there about not designing your own thing. Like, I think you can summarize that up in our biggest limit to uh, progress is cultural sentiment. And hmm. we could say we could replace the word cultural with personal sentiment. But okay. we get all these like, that's a weed. That's not yeah. a weed. It's like, well, it's just relative. It's like that's pretty. That's not pretty. It's it, there's a lot of kind of subjective analysis and all of that stuff. And, um, and so learning to kind of kind of move up to 30,000 feet and yeah. try and remove some of the emotion is really valuable in, in how you approach property design. Even when you think insects like beneficial and, and pest, right? Okay. So then I go out to my garden and I, I look at my pepper plant and there's a great big tobacco hornworm and he's on there munching on my pepper. Well, he's a pest. Right next to him is a big giant fennel frond, and there's a black swallowtail caterpillar on there doing the same thing, eating my food. And what happens? I grab the hornworm, and I throw him to my catfish in, in the pond, yeah. and I, I, I pet the little caterpillar, and he makes his little orange things come out of his head, and I show my grandkid, look, he thinks he's scary. And then we leave him there to eat my fennel. Why? Because I like the way the black swallowtail looks. 
and a tornado hornworm seems like it's better food for a channel catfish. <laughs> but but in the end, aren't they both doing the same thing? They're both eating my food that I planted for me and my family. Yeah. But yet one is bad and the other one's good. And I don't even know that I need to change that, but I think maybe I should be aware of it. Yeah. But we were working on a ranch a number of years ago. It was like a 5,000 acre uh, cattle ranch. Most of it was crown land. And so they didn't own it. They just leased the land to, to let their cows run on it. And they were constantly fighting against elk and turkeys eating all their feed. Um, and so again, that old adage of like, I'm sick of trying to keep things alive that want to die and, and killing things that want to live. Um, and, and so that whole concept of work as a failure in design, like what does your property produce effortlessly? If it produces these caterpillars, um, it's incredible protein. Um, what eats the caterpillars? What you, you know, Mollison said it, you don't have a slug problem. You have a duct deficiency. Um, and so we have to stop like nature has no sentiment. She doesn't see things in the lens of weeds or pests. Um, Odom, I don't know if you've read any of his stuff, but Mollison's, uh, work and, and Holmgren's work were based upon Odom's thinking. And he was a, an ecologist from, um, North or South Carolina, kind of the, the grandfather of, of the ecological movement. Um, and he came up with this, there's actually two brothers, two Odoms, if you're searching this, uh, Howard and Thomas, I think, um, or no, sorry, Howard and Eugene. Um, and they came up with this idea uh, of the maximum power principle. And basically, the concept in ecology was that ecosystems were always just trying to maximize the amount of energy they were able to capture. And so they did that with multiple layers. So a forest has eight different layers in it. Um, and, and so those caterpillars are operating on that same principle of trying to capture energy. Those, those pepper plants are capturing energy. And so when you start looking at things through the lens of how energy flows through a property, uh, whether it's plant material, whether it's sunshine, whether it's caterpillars, um, our job is to uh, place systems that connect to those energy flows and then harvest the, the, the principle or the, um, the interest, sorry, that coming off of them. Um, and, and so, so much of what we do in, in this present day paradigm is uh and and it's interesting i've been watching you talk a little bit about ai every once in a while it comes up on my feed and when you think about like the arc of industrial farming and and like where we've come from and where we're going we've basically made bigger dumber machines uh up until recently um to grow uh more larger monocrops and the reason we've done that is because because we live in a commodified agricultural system the only way for farmers to make more money is to go bigger, produce more, and basically cut out the labor. Well, once you're down to one farmer running thousands of acres of land, what do you, where do you go from there? You're, you've reached rock bottom. And so now what's really interesting about all the AI stuff is like instead of using AI to um, actually allow one farmer to, to manage a piece of property with thousands of different diverse systems, which is the original mixed farm, um, we're now using AI with lasers and vision technology to shoot weeds. So the benefit yeah. is we get rid of the herbicide, but yeah. it's actually just they're going down the same pathway, yeah. which is like uh, further specialization. And so now instead of, you know, requiring import labor or, or bigger tractors, we're going to use these super complex brains yeah. To, to, to shoot the diversity. It's like nature just wants to be diverse. So why don't we yeah. use the vision and the AI to facilitate um, 
you know, a mixed herd of animals and food Correct. forests and, and, and gardens that have, you know, way more diversity in them. Um, I, ideally, we'd bring humans back onto the land. That'd be my perfect situation that we'd, we'd, we'd create relationships. You know, we, we've moved into this high tech civilization. We need yeah. high tech. We need high nature. Um, and we need high touch. But yeah. with all the like Apple glasses and AI and the metaverse, we're actually going high tech low touch, low nature. Um, and we're, we're kind of reinforcing this pattern that we are somehow separate from the systems that we depend upon, which is really dangerous in my opinion. Well, and you know, you talk about bringing people back on the land and then let's just understand the land is all around us. We're all on land. None of us are seasteaders yet anyway, uh, or space steaders at this point. So we're, everywhere we are is land. And I don't know if you remember many, many years ago, way back to when we probably hung out and drank a beer together or something like that in California, I had an initiative. I never really got off the ground because I, I make honestly, I made it too complicated. I was trying to make this website that would do all this wonderful stuff and track everything called 10% project. And the concept mm. was simply replacing 10% of all bushes, trees and vines, uh, all perennials in residential situations with something else. So one in 10. And I calculated this massive amount of food that could have been generated out. of. Of course, it would have all been fruits and some veg and stuff like that. You know, coming forward now, 12 years since then, I look at it and go, there's so many other options. So if if the person's not a, a, a fruit eater, they could be growing things like, you know, with Nick Ferguson stuff with like white mulberry and willow and stuff like that. That could be for fodder for things like rabbits mm-hmm. or goats or yep. sheep. Right. And even if you like, you're, oh, I'm on this little piece of land. How can I grow sheep? Well, maybe the guy down the road can grow sheep and you can have a row of willow and a row of hybrid poplar that are managed with coppicing in your backyard. And you can give him feed for his sheep and you can get a quarter lamb a year. Right. Like mm-hmm. there's how much of that could we do if we maximized it? And I think if we did, we would find that the average suburb could easily be 40 to 50 percent self-sufficient. And I didn't say house. I said the suburb, the whole damn thing. And if we would start building with that in mind, maybe we'd give people a little bit more space and not stack them so heavily on each other and, you know, give up the equivalent of a small farm for every cul-de-sac we have for concrete. Like that's a, that's a dumb thing. Like I had the guy on, I can't think of his name now from strong towns. And he was talking about why cul-de-sacs are so big. And it's because some bureaucrats someday decided that the biggest fire truck needed to be able to turn around and call sac. Mm. So we have a cul-de-sac has an average of 60 to a hundred thousand dollars of concrete and asphalt into it. That, that generally doesn't really need to be there just because of how big this they are. And I never thought of that. Like, and how much could we do with what we have, even if we left everything small and it's, it's kind of insane really. And it's not like you're actually asking people to give up a lot by doing that. Like, I, I think we are moving toward where well, human labor is being valued less and less. Yeah. And, and you know that people need something to do. Yeah. You want the saddest thing you can see in life. I, I don't know if you, I, again, I don't remember which voices you were at, but it was, I think it was the sec, first one was in Temecula where the Indian casino was. Yeah. And you walk around an Indian casino and watch a senior citizen putting their Social Security money into a slot machine while smoking a cigarette, destroying what's left of their body. Yeah. That is... That is sad. And, and, and one way or another, it's what everybody's doing. You were talking about industrial foods earlier. The, the, the fats most people are consuming are seed oils at this point. Mm-hmm. And they are industrial toxins. 
They are yeah. not food. I mean, it's no. one thing to say that like the food is nutrient poor, but the the the, the seed oils, horrible. Like the canola is. It's not in the best case scenario. Yeah, it's not food. It's not for humans because you would never get any significant amount of it without the industrial process to extract it. You know, olives can't fault olives. 2,000 years ago, people, you know, and more, people figured out, put a bunch of olives in a little vat, put a little pressure on it, oil comes out. Okay, that probably is human food. When you look at like a 27-stage heat-driven process to turn essentially wild mustard into oil, Mm -hmm. it's a plant that basically repels pests because they die if they eat too much of it. Yeah. Crazy. And the alternative we're offering is why don't we do a little bit of something with your backyard instead of pay the true green Kemlon people to come spray it once a week and poison your children? Yeah, it's totally. not a big ask. No, I mean, it's all upside, really, at the end of the day. And um, I, I got I was in a conversation with a, a master's student probably six years ago. I wrote a blog after this because it was so shocking to me. And he said, well, can we feed the world? I said, I think so. Uh, what, like he's like, why? Well, I, I don't think we can. I don't think like in our current trajectory we can feed the world. I said, well, what are your assumptions? Are you assuming we're going to keep our golf courses and our front lawns and everything else? And he said, well, yeah, totally. I said, and and then I'm going to just add a little side piece to this. I was reading Lear Keith's book, The Vegetarian Myth, which is a great book. Um, she brings up a lot of really great uh, points in there. And she said, like, if we just turned the farmland in the, in America from uh, and, and this was a scientist that did the statistic from North Dakota, south to the Gulf of Mexico, east of the Mississippi, back into perennial grasslands. And we'd probably use agroforestry as well. Um, the U.S. would be carbon neutral overnight without changing any of its behaviors, um, which is just like for me, that's such a big red flag. Like we're, mm-hmm. we're spending all this money and energy trying to talk about carbon. And yet we're not bringing farmers into the equation. Um, like if, if it's really that big of a deal, like stop growing the corn and soy and wheat. Um, and so anyways, I, I ended up finding some statistics for U.S. cities. I couldn't find them for Canada. It's always easier to find stats from, from the U.S. And it turns out that if we took all the land that's currently in lawn um, and we converted it over just to wheat, which we wouldn't do because we, if yeah, we yeah, yeah. that much wheat, we'd become gluten intolerant. But um, but just to like get a bulk, like really reductionist caloric output from the lawn in the U.S., uh, you could feed everybody in the U.S. a 2,000 calorie diet per day for two years if we just converted the lawn into grain production. Okay. Now, put it into food for us. Um, the other thing is there's enough fuel used in the cutting of that lawn to drive a Hummer 21,000 times around the earth um, per year. Per yeah, year. I got you. And then, and then, like, the millions of dollars that get spent on herbicides and pesticides. We love to blame farmers for spraying herbicides and pesticides, but urban people spray way more because they don't have the, the cost constraints of growing these products. Um, and so by doing that, by growing all the food within cities, we could turn all the land back out in the outskirts into perennial polycultures, uh, grasses and trees, ideally in a perfect world we'd take our fences down and let the bison come back but that won't happen so go back to like roving herds of of cattle uh with chickens and and like build ecosystems like basically the same way we build a food forest we build a meat forest um on all on all this land you deal with the dead zone that disappears um you've got nutrient density coming back we can stop talking about carbon because it's all going to get back into the soil in very short order 
Um, we deal with um, the urban runoff. All those cul-de-sacs now become water harvesting opportunities like Brad Lancaster has done in Tucson, Arizona. Um, and uh, we don't have food traveling 10,000 kilometers. And hopefully now we ha- go back to a place where we have um, five calories of food coming out for every calorie of energy we put back into our system. Yeah. Yeah. And so Mollison's quote, like the, the problems of the world are increasingly complex, but the solutions remain ridiculously simple. Yeah. Still holds true in 2023. I mean, yeah. Tell me if somebody gave you the opportunity to design a suburb, you couldn't design it specifically. So we would say there's going to be X amount of not even a suburb. Um, that's not what I'm thinking of more a subdivision. That's what I'm saying. Sure. So a little bit smaller. And we know exactly how many houses. Let's say there's going to be uh, 150 houses. Average uh, occupancy rate is going to be three people because we're going to have singles, doubles, larger families. And they're going to be average this size. And this is the grass and the forbs and the clovers that grow good in this area. And just starting off from scratch to be able to say, let's, let's eliminate lawn care, even where there's lawn. And you couldn't design that to rotate sheep through so that maybe once every two weeks you look out in your backyard, oh, the sheep are here. Right. And you could design it so that landscaping that you had, you didn't want the sheep to bother, wouldn't be bothered because you did it from the beginning. You know what you're doing. And then your lawn is fertilized. It's mowed. And the sheep went next door. And at the end of the season, there's a certain amount of lamb that's distributed and, and probably paid for. You know, so when I say distributed, I don't necessarily mean it's free. I'm not going there. And so that your lawn care bill now becomes part of your your meat budget annually. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like that is it. You, you look at it and go, wow, man, it's, that would not even be hard. No. You and I could sit down, give us a square of land, and if that was like one of the things we wanted, and we could design that in from the get-go, and it could literally become the framework that the rest of the design floated around. Would we do that? I don't know. We might decide some other keystone framework is a better thing for the climate, the place, and the people, right? But doing that wouldn't be hard. No. designing laneways so that the sheep literally grazed in around the houses and people had a much smaller lawn to maintain, even if they had claim to the land in the laneway, that would be simple. Super that, that would be like, give me a pencil, right? Totally. We could just, uh, and, and so when you got two dudes that do what we do, they could do that. Don't tell me some of these people with PhDs and shit, if they would get switched onto this, couldn't do way more than we could. Or some genius working along with something like AI now couldn't do more. Like we can leverage these tools and this knowledge. The problem I think we have is that we've created this walled off society. Well, farmers are over there, right? Of course, we wouldn't involve them in this. They just grow food. We don't need to just grow your food and shut up, right? And then, of course, we wouldn't involve petrochemical engineers in this. What do they know? They're out drilling for oil. Like, And, of course, you know, the teachers, all they need to do is do whatever the hell they're told to do. And then we'll just call them educators instead of teachers to make it sound more complicated. And we will teach children what we want them to know versus how the world works. And then you sit back and go, well, why do we have all these problems? I don't know. Maybe because we're disconnected from reality. Right. Maybe we just like reality and us are just not. And then when you talk to somebody about some of this stuff, they they have this visceral, like repelling reaction at first. And I think it's because they can't believe that the solutions are as simplistic as they are yeah. because that means that everything else is a lie and accepting that is really difficult. Close the pod, plug me back in. I don't want to know. I mean, that's kind of the reaction a lot of society has to this stuff. It's all cultural sentiment and we just keep maintaining this, this narrative that's not serving us. And, um, 
I like to say that the, the PDC is like a 12 stage uh, program for, for mourning what was um, because we don't actually teach anything new in a PDC really. There's a few things, but mostly it's just um, taking the knowledge you have out of your brain, chucking it into the air and then reorienting it in a new direction um, toward in, in a different pattern. And all of a sudden things just start to make sense. And um, it's just common sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you think peak energy is going to impact people's lives? And I think that's less a peak oil thing or, you know, peak nat gas or peak coal or anything like that. It's just peak energy, like as a whole, because I think we have, again, the raw material is only one piece of it. We have a grid. We have an increasing demand. And when we have a lot of conflict amongst ourselves as to how we're going to do this. So I think, again, there's people that say solar and wind will never do what it needs to do. Okay, fine. Uh, or we will never give up fossil fuels. Uh, fine, but there's still a matter of actually utilizing the energy. And then there's policy, right? On the scale of permanence, regulations go right below mountains, mm-hmm. right? And I, I think sometimes that's even wrong. Like, I think they it's a bad thing to do, but we can move a mountain faster than we can move regulations sometimes. So some people have made some decisions that have some power that maybe they shouldn't have that are going to impact us. So I think we're going to have an energy drawdown in some way. What do you think that looks like for people? I mean, it's so hard to know. And, and I, I definitely ascribe to that belief that that predictions are for charlatans. And so I don't want to be one, but, um, yeah. and that is because like the chance of me, getting it right is way smaller than the chance of me getting it wrong. But, um, and this is where I, I I'm going to just draw on Taleb's brilliance again. He, he looks at everything through the lens of fragility, resilience, and anti-fragility. And so anti-fragile systems uh, benefit from volatility, resilient systems resist it, and fragile systems break. And so when I look at our food, energy, water, shelter systems, that is really kind of the arc of what we're talking about today the majority of what we depend upon on a daily basis. Um, and, and like, you don't need to be an engineer. You don't need to be a farmer. You don't need to be a teacher. I can just ask your crowd right now. Like if you were to rank the current global financial system as fragile, resilient, or anti-fragile, you know, you don't need to be a financier to say, well, it's fragile. Like we're, you guys are about to reach a debt ceiling, which who knows if that's even a real thing. Um, if that's just a, a dog, no, I already raised it. It doesn't matter. It's all, cr- but there's a consequence to that. Totally. Right. There's a, yeah. Yeah. It's, and, it's all welcome, but yeah, there's a consequence to inflation. Yeah, totally. And so like, if, if you can look at food, energy, water, shelter, we're talking about energy right now and say, is the energy system resilient, fragile or anti-fragile? Um, it becomes less about when or how, and more about what are you going to do in order to create a system for yourself. You, you talked about DIY solar. I, I think solar is great. I think everybody should have, um, you guys should definitely go check out that program and, and learn the basics of energy um, because like the majority of people are, are energy illiterate. And so how can you actually wrap your head around the fragility of, you can, you can look at it and say, well, the energy system is pretty fragile. In Texas, you guys lost power and everything blew up. Yeah. Um, like you, you can, you, you feel that inside, but what do you do about it? Well, you educate yourself, you start to become literate about it. Um, and then you can actually start taking actions within your life to, to kind of, so that it all of a sudden you don't have to get the prediction, right? You've, you've already created that insurance policy so that you're less susceptible to it. And now when another power outage in Texas happens and you happen to have an off grid hybrid 
power system where you've got solar batteries and a generator, you've just increased the value of your property by whatever percentage, because now you have the best house on the block. Um, and so instead of like turning it into fear and like um, concern, you've, you've turned lemon into a lemonade and you've actually done what all investors do. The good investors is they see an opportunity to hedge against something that potentially um, could harm them in the future. And so you turn harm into opportunity. Um, the, the good news about our energy consumption as a planet is there's so much fat to trim. You know, when I look at wakeboarding boats that fill the back end of their boats with uh, water tanks to create a giant wake, I mean, those things are just gas guzzlers. Um, or the, you know, any name any petroleum-fueled infrastructure um, you know, we use, we use propane to attract mosquitoes into mosquito traps, you know, like there's so many of these things that we're doing right now with fossil fuels that are just ridiculous. It's just like hedonistic, ridiculous. They make no sense. And so the first thing that we're going to start to see is that um, people will stop doing those things. They, they won't be able to afford them. Um, you know, P Cuba is a great example of what happens when a society is basically cut off. Mm -hmm. um, now they were cut off in a year. Um, yeah. This is going to happen gradually over time. Yeah. But it's interesting when Cuba lost all their energy, like their heart disease went down, their cancer went down, their obesity went down. Um, you know, they everything kind of a lot of things in their society improved. There were a lot of things that got worse too. Um, but people will start to go back to fundamentals, and and so I think it's it's important to like I said earlier, be cognizant of what energy is and how it comes into your life and how you use it and what your relationship is to it. And then to create a couple of things in your head that are like signals in all the noise. It's like, Oh, that's, that maybe has to do with, uh, you know, a potential shortage over there or, yeah. um, and then come up with like, don't stop. Like most of us um, have been trained to do and like be a deer in the headlights how can I turn this into something that benefits me? Yeah. Um, and ideally, how can I turn this into something that benefits me and the ecosystem around me? And not because I'm altruistic, but because I know that the ecosystem around me actually benefits me directly in return. It makes my oxygen, it, it cleans my water, it produces my food. Um, and, and yeah, so changing your mindset, I think is the, the best thing. I don't know what's going to happen, but I can tell you that I bought a farm with, a hundred acres of forest on it. I said to my wife, if we're not moving south <laughs> somewhere like Texas and we're going to live in a cold climate, I need to be able to heat my house. So I want, I want biomass. Um, I want enough land to grow the food that I need for myself and my community. Um, I want a house that's oriented to south. There's a saying we have in our courses that if architects and engineers knew where south was, we could save 50% of the energy that our houses consume. Um, so I wanted a house that was retrofittable. Yeah. Um, so there's like some basic things that you can do to ensure yourself against the fragile energy systems that we depend upon. And then you, you can stop worrying about like what and when. Yeah. I, I What I can say is I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I expect problems. Okay. I yeah. think that's a pretty, that's a pretty broad prediction, but a pretty spot on one. And the reason is, and, and I, I made this comment in the chat while you were talking there, Anyone, especially politicians who talks about energy but can't define impedance and attenuation without the Internet should sit down and shut up because we have people making policy and forming opinion that don't know the first thing about electricity. Yeah. And they're wanting to regulate and control public opinion of how to distribute and use electricity. 
Yeah. So people will make these claims. Well, we can do this with wind or we can do this with ocean power. They have no idea. Well, what what is the loss between the power generation facility and the power being delivered? Uh, what does that look like and how does that work? And how much infrastructure do you need to put in to be able to do this? We're all going to have electric vehicles. Okay, great. And answer me this, genius. What happens when we replace 10% of the vehicles on the road with Teslas and other motor vehicles and 5 o'clock comes and everybody gets home from work and plugs their car into the grid that already fails when it's really cold or really hot out? Where is that? And what is the plan to generate more power? And what does the infrastructure upgrade plan look like? And this is why I agree with you on learning to do solar, even small scale, because what will inevitably happen if there is power failures and you have a, a solar system of your own that's not giving you 100%, it's giving you 25%, you'll effing figure out how to live with that 25%, and you will be more comfortable than living with zero. Yeah. Right? Real quick. It's like people that, you know, why homeschool exploded after COVID? Because people that never thought they could had to. Yeah. And once they did it, they went, wait a minute. If I can do it here, I can keep doing it. They also got, that's a total different subject, but they got a glimpse of what was going on behind the scenes as well. Yeah. But I totally. think that it's the same reason I tell people to grow food. Like people are disconnected with how much energy and work goes into their food and how many things can destroy the food before you get to eat it. Yeah. You grow two four by eight garden beds. That illusion is dead forever. The first time blister beetles come in and eat all your cucumber to the ground that was beautiful the day before, that illusion that, well, it'll all be okay, it goes away. And I'm not somebody that, that hypes fear. I mean, you know that. But I also want people to not live in this, you know, perpetual world of artificial beauty that's not really there. Like, yeah. there's so much actual beauty. We don't need to have this idea that, like, oh, it's just somebody takes care of it all for me. And if you think about it, like, you mentioned kind of how much human energy is represented in fossil fuels. We all live today like royalty from 300 years ago. In fact, yeah. we live better, better than royalty from 300 years ago. That was the, the king's opinion 300 years ago. I don't need to worry about it for me. People will handle that for me. Yeah. And so now we all live like royalty, even poor people get people very angry with me when I say this. Poor people live like royalty in 2023. Totally. But I don't mean Prince or King Charles. Right. I mean, the royalty of 300 years ago. Yeah. People in housing projects with cable television and cell phones live better than a duke or a duchess or a prince in 1700. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And it's all about this abundant energy, which can be good and it can be bad. Yep. There's there's really three types of people out there. So there's people that that kind of hear about some fear, something scary, and they just shut down and put their head in the sand. Uh, there's people that kind of hear about it and they talk about it to everybody, but they don't do anything about it. And then there's what you and I are espousing. It's like you need to be conscious of it. You need to be conscious of these things because it's reality. Um but go do something about it so you don't have to worry about it anymore. Be practical and pragmatic. And um, and once you kind of find the right tribe of people, you find the right information, you get the signal and not the noise. There's lots of that out there. Um, you start realizing it's, it's, it's kind of like putting a Lego project together. It's just like you're plugging in little pieces here and there. And um, it's really not that, that complicated once you find the right group of people to hang around. Um, 
So turn off the news. I mean, and, and like pay attention to channels like this where guys like Jack are doing research and, and um, kind of staying up to speed on the, the signal and not the noise. And then you'll notice that most of Jack's stuff, there's always a solution right behind it. Yeah. Um, and it may not be perfect for your bioregion, but there'll be something that rhymes with it for where you live. And, um, and, and I think Penny Livingston, I know we're getting close to the end here, but I, I really love her, her statement that she made. And I repeat it all the time. It's like, we, we can't, we're not going to attract people to what we do um, with vinegar. It's, it's, we, bees, bees are attracted to honey. And so we have yeah. to make shit taste better. Yeah. It's gotta be more fun. Um, it's gotta create more freedom and liberty. Um, you know, like those are the things like you, you use economics, it's economics plus fun, plus taste, uh, mm-hmm. plus connection with people, uh, plus connection with nature. Like people just walk into these systems. I'm sure people walk onto your property all the time. Like I want this, this is what yeah. I want. I don't even know what this is. Like, I, I don't understand all these parts, but this is what I want. Um, and until they can put their hands onto it, um, it's just kind of theoretical. Um, but yeah, no, I agree. I mean, the number one way to create a gardener is hand them a pepper at about 10 o'clock in the morning when it just begins to warm in the sun yeah. directly off the plant and have them look at you and go, I can eat, I can eat. Cause they, some people it's very foreign. I remember my sister-in-law, she all excited and wanted to do gardens. She's a school teacher at the school from that. Like the fact that you could literally like, you can just eat this. I don't have to wash it. Well, do you see dirt on it? <laughs> right? Does it look like it's dirty? No, then you can eat it. You know? I don't see any bug turds on it. Go ahead and eat it. And it was incredible to her. But most people have never even tasted food like that. Mm-hmm. It makes a big impact. Or when they think a garden is being kind of dirty or uh, messy looking, you show them a garden and it's, it's booming with food, but also flowers and, and, and butterflies and bees and everything. And it's like, oh, wow, that looks beautiful. Like I always say, like the landscapers that want to do permaculture, don't call it permaculture. Call it edible landscaping. People know what that yeah. is, right? Yeah. Don't use words your market doesn't understand. And the totally. permaculture enthusiasts that can't do it themselves, they know what it is. They'll figure it out, but you got to speak to the masses using the masses' totally. words. And they understand beauty and they understand money savings. They understand quality. They understand fun. They understand recreation. And and yeah. that's what we need to kind of be marketing. And at the same time, you look at industrial farming. And if it wasn't way out in the sticks, if you actually did see it and you did smell it and you did touch it, you would understand that it's got a lot of problems. But beyond the problems, you say it's doomed. Why do you feel that way? Well, there's a few things that are right around the the corner that that are going to force massive transformation in agriculture. Um, so one of them is, I mean, it's interesting to watch Ukraine right now. Um, the uh, we reached peak grain output in 1984 per capita, so we've never produced more grain per capita than in the 80s. Yeah. Um, we're roughly seven years away from peak phosphorus according to nature and scientific american uh, most of the phosphorus is in morocco uh, china and the u.s but the majority of it's in morocco so expect to see a war in morocco sometime in the next seven years um, the last war that was fought on phosphorus was the falkland islands um, and that was over bird guano uh, specifically for munitions uh, but also for agriculture as well. That's great. We fought over seagull shit. Like people killed each other over seagull shit. Like let that sink in, folks. Don't let that go surface on you. 
we had a war. It was a short war, and you didn't have to send your kids there. So it was a byline for most people in America. But there was a war over bird shit. And, and in my talks, I talk about how we need to create abundance because then we don't have wars. Because there were wars in the past over salt and pepper. Yeah. Right. So anything that becomes a scarce resource, you will have conflict that will have to resolve the resource deficiency. So anyway, go ahead. I just want people to let like you can't you can't skip past that without letting it sink in that in modern history, we had one nation fight another nation over bird shit. It's crazy. It's not. That's, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, so like there's actually no phosphorus shortage on Earth. Um but when we use, you know, spray-based agriculture and tillage-based agriculture, we, we kill the fungi that actually cycles all the phosphorus in the soil. So the, the current paradigm of monoculture farming that depends upon uh, superphosphate is coming to an end, uh, whether we like that or not. And because of the fact that we passed peak grain per capita in 1984, most people also don't realize that there's only about 16 to 18 months of surplus food on planet Earth. That, that's that's crazy to me. Like we just have to have one bad crop or one war like what's going on in Russia right now in Ukraine um, to set that balance negative. Um, so we, we, we literally civilization is perched on a whole bunch of very convenient things. Um, some scientists are saying we have 60 crop cycles left on Earth um, right now. About seven metric tons of topsoil is eroded for every ton of grain we produce. Uh, as you said, we export more soil than we do food right now in the U.S. Same would be in Canada. Um, the the uh, consensus is not out yet on, like some people say we've got tons of natural gas. Some, some people we say we don't have very much. Um, it's who knows? It's tough to say. But natural gas is kind of where the predominant uh, synthetic fertilizer of nitrogen comes from um, through the Haber-Bosch process. Um, turns out there's no nitrogen shortage on Earth. We've got lots of it. You just have to change the way that you look at soils and uh, legumes and, and animals and things like that. Um, and then, you know, that that doesn't pr um, prevent something like an Irish famine happening. I mean, if you look yeah. at the Irish famine, they grew one one species of potato. And, and, and most people don't know this, but the Irish government was exporting calories uh, from Ireland during the Irish famine. So there was actually a surplus of calories on the island, but they didn't give it to their own people. Uh, and so it let that sink in a little bit because... Yeah, yeah. the like, lesson from that is even if nature doesn't screw it up, the state will. Yeah, and so, and so like 25% of the population starved within four years, and the other 25% ended up moving to the U.S. or other parts of the world, Um you know, in a four year period of time, because they were growing one crop that ended up getting a disease. One now, variety of one crop. Yeah. Right? It was the lumper potato. The lumper. It was literally a decree that thou shalt grow this potato. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and like, we're really not that far away from it. I mean, we've destroyed our soils so that we have to genetically engineer crops to be able to grow in dead soils. And then we use synthetic fertilizers. So we've basically mimicked hydroponics across the world. So we're essentially growing hydroponic plants in aggregates. Um, and like we're about to lose the Cavendish banana. Everybody gets sad about that. Well, it's a monoculture um, and it's a banana that was chosen based on its ability to ship. And so all of our, our optimization in the food system is designed around labor reduction, um, you know, shipping capabilities um, and, and output, not based on nutrition, yep. disease resistance, 
Um, yeah. Any number of pests could show up in the agricultural system that could, again, take that really limited surplus that we have on Earth down nothing. Um, while we get rid of surplus, just like the, the Irish exported their calories and everybody goes, oh, that's really stupid. OK, so now we're fighting over phosphorus and we're literally flushing phosphorus into the sewer system. Yeah. Creating another giant industry of waste. Yeah. And we're getting rid of like there's more phosphorus that comes out the butts of humans than we would ever need to grow all the food for humans. And there's more nitrogen in our urine that a person can feed themselves from a nitrogen standpoint on their urine alone. Yeah. One human produces enough nitrogen to grow enough food for one human. Which is interesting. I mean, it's just a closed loop system, right? Yeah, it could I, be. I, my most recent calculation was on the uh, organic waste produced in the U.S. And again, I'm not picking on the states. I just find the stats there easier. I, yeah, I apologize. No, no. But, you can pick on the states. I do um, it all the time. Canada's the same. But there's enough organic waste produced in the U.S. that you could feed. Um, I think you guys consume around 25 million tons of um, chicken a year. Okay. There's enough organic waste with a 1.6 to 1 feed ratio, even if it was a 2 to 1 feed ratio for chickens to grow all the chickens and eggs in the States just off of the solid organic waste coming off the back end of houses. So coming back to our, you know, front lawn an analogy, like we could grow all of our vegetables and fruits. Uh, we could all have a small flock of chickens or every third or fourth house could have a flock of chickens. All the meat and eggs could be produced. And then you have a, a dairy cow amongst four households. Um, that's it. That's your food system right there. And then like, keep bringing in pepper, keep bringing in salt. We use them in small amounts. Yeah. Um, you know, like all of your kind of energy problems go away. Like as far as food is concerned, nutrient density goes up, your hospital bills start going down. That's the other piece. I mean, we have free medical care up here kind of. Um, but, um, you know, you think about the amount of money that somebody has to spend on, on, on medicine because they're not eating good food. I mean, it's just, Simple. How about the amount of money they spend on food because of the volume of food they have to eat to yeah. get obese and nutrient deficient at the same time? When I went full on keto and mostly carnivore, I was amazed at how much less food I ate in yeah. volume without any restriction. Because when you know you eat nothing but a ribeye, a 10 ounce ribeye, and you're like, okay, I, I'm done. I'm finished, and it's about nutrient density. And if somebody yeah. wants to do it with vegetation, I think it's a little harder. But there's certain the certain reality. I mean, anybody that's uh, that has dogs that's ever done this with dog food. So we feed our dogs now chicken, right. human quality chicken. We don't feed them dog food. We're spending less to feed our dogs than buying them good quality dog food. Right, right. Feeding them chicken out of the human food supply chain because it's a hundred percent nutrient dense because they're getting the bones, the, the marrow, the cartilage, they're getting everything and they're healthier and happier because of, yeah. again, and it's probably not the, it's honestly the shittiest chicken you can buy because they, in the end they are dogs, but I feel it's a thousand times better than Alpo. Totally. You know? Yeah. And it's, I think people would be surprised at how much less food they would eat. And I'm not talking about just losing weight here. I'm talking about like you just, when you get nutrient density, and you get caloric yield, and you get like with the vegetation, you get hybridics. You just eat less, yeah. Right. And if you get away with get away from processed crap, then you don't get these like the the food companies are now 
they're they have been for a long time since the early 1900s. They've been scientific chemistry companies. Yeah. And in the beginning, it wasn't really about let's make the food crap. It was let's make the food able to go from Chicago to, you know, Philadelphia and not kill you. That was the first goal. That was kind of a noble goal at the time. They didn't know what they were. Doing. But in time, it's become, OK, now that we have that, how do I make the person buy more food? And so you literally have propeller head type scientists sitting in laboratories going exactly how much sugar do we use and what kind of sugar do we add to this thing that has no need of sugar whatsoever, not just to fluff it up, but to trigger an eating response in a human, mm-hmm. right? It's how do we make the potato chip addictive? Mm-hmm. And then you know what we'll do? We'll be honest about it. We'll advertise that you can't eat just one. Yeah. We'll advertise that we've created an addictive product and they'll buy it anyway because they're just that dumb. Yeah. And it sounds so ridiculous when you put it that way, but tell me it's not true. It's totally true. You know, it, it's been really cool to watch. That's uh, kind of the cool thing about YouTube and socials. I don't look at very many of them. I'm on YouTube. That's about it personally. But um, to watch your journey and like we've kind of been on similar journeys. I, I've done the keto and carnivore thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've talked a lot about supply in this episode, but one of the most empowering things that an individual can do if, if none of this stuff resonates with you is learning about your own physiology. Like, I can't believe I can eat once a day if I'm eating yeah. good food. And, and, and like, I'm regularly, I don't eat for, for three or four days. Like, I fast on a regular basis. Um, when I went into my keto phase, which was a few years ago now, and I trained my body to burn fat. Uh, it was the most empowering thing in the world. It's like, wow, I can operate this body and be satiated with very little caloric input. You start realizing that like two thirds of the meals that you eat in a day, if you're eating three meals a day, just goes into digestion. Yeah. And so understanding kind of the edges of what our human physiology is capable of. And then then you got start nerding out on on like what hunter gatherers would have done and how, like why our bodies evolved this way. It's, it's the most empowering thing. And all of a sudden some of the food security stuff kind of vanishes a little bit because it's like, well, I don't actually have to generate three meals a day. I just have to generate one really good one. Um, and with some, you know, basic macronutrients in it and, uh, and micronutrients in it and, and I'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't skip four days worth of food. My typical day is two meals. Um, usually it's leftovers and it's very much a carnivore based diet with a few things from the garden. I do yeah. a lot of little crock pot cooks of, you know, take the meat, throw it in there, add some bone broth. And yeah. then right before I eat it, I'll go out and grab a few tomatoes or peppers and throw them in there and stir it up. Today's is cooking right now while we're talking, it's actually leftover chicken and Italian sausage nice. with fennel fronds. Perfect. Right. And that, that, that'll be lunch and it'll be three o'clock here by the time I eat it. I'll eat again around six, six thirty, and I won't eat again. And so I'm got eighteen to twenty hours between my two meals, and they call that intermittent fasting. But what yeah. I found is that it's like intermittent fasting implies that you're intentionally doing this. That once I started eating food like I eat now, that's pretty much it. You know, if I get up in the morning and have a cup of coffee and put a tablespoon of cream in it, that's I'm I don't want to eat. Right, I'm done. You know, and, and, and it's not uh, like, oh, I have to wait. It's just like, honestly, when I get done producing a show, it's like I better go eat lunch so there's enough time before dinner, right? Because I don't want the food to go to the waste, right? I want to use it. Yeah, totally. And uh, it, it's it, it's a totally different way of looking at things. And 
people think it's expensive, but no, we you know what's expensive is insulin. Yeah. Insulin on a person that wasn't born a diabetic, a type two diabetic. That's incredibly expensive because not only is it legitimately expensive, it never had to be mm. like, I, I, I think the average type one diabetic probably wants to just go on a punching spree, punching type two diabetics in the face because right. they're living with a condition. They don't have to, that this person has to, to contend with it's right. It, and it, it doesn't have to be this way. Let's just, let's wrap up. And we, we've gone quite a while. Um, you say the COVID crisis and Ukraine war have some foreshadowing in our future. What do you mean by that? Well, it was a test run in a way um, for like what happens when that abundant Costco all of a sudden has no stuff left on the shelves. Yeah. Um, it was a wake up call. And what I've found, I've actually been kind of surprised by how quickly people have kind of gone back to their own patterns, probably out of, PTSD or something, I don't know, but, um, or the rubber band effect, but, um, it was, it was even for somebody like me, who's been thinking about this for a long time, like there was, it was really interesting to observe my own emotional reaction. I still go to those stores sometimes and, um, for certain things and just seeing empty shelves is like, wow, like I've never experienced this in a first world country in my lifetime. And this is, this is stark. Um, and so just, again, like reiterating all the things that we've already talked about, um, and you, I think you said it in your intro, um, you don't, you think you had a crypto analogy, like you don't take it off the exchange until it's too late. Um, or it was, you're using ammo, I think as an example. Yeah. Um, like it's, it's easy to get lulled into our society. Our society is all about comfort and hedonism and, and, um, and like doing the easy thing. Um, and, and we're more or less back to a normal somewhat world, uh, depending upon if you're listening to this channel, you don't probably don't believe, think that, but I think the people that don't listen to this channel are more or less, um, have gone back to the way of life. They don't want to think yep. about what they've just gone through as opposed to like looking at that, um, small crisis relative to what it could be, um, you know, and I'm talking about supply chains here specifically, I'm not mm -hmm. going into the other stuff, but um, and, and saying like, what would this have looked like if it was twice as bad, if it was 10 times as bad? Um, and, and what, how would that impact my life if all of a sudden I couldn't get money or I couldn't get food? Um, like the fact that I, I always wonder what our, our ancestors would say, like just from like the, the grocery store was only here 50 years ago, you know, like it was in the 1950s and 60s that they started showing up what would our ancestors say if they knew that we, most of us only had three days of food on our shelves at home and that the grocery stores only had three days of food on them. That we were um, stupid. That's, yeah. that's what they would say. Totally. It's crazy. Yeah. It's like everybody should have a year supply of food, not because we're alarmists, but like you, you're going to force yourself to eat whole food. Um, you save money by buying in bulk. Um, and then if something bad happens, you've got a year to figure things out. Um, yeah. it's, it, it's, it, that's, that's a perfect example of an asymmetric option. There's no downside to it. There's if people want to know why you should have some, some backhaul storage is because I watch people fight over a 12 pack of toilet paper. <laughs> that's why, right? Yeah. That's why. 
Because <laughs> I watched people in the one they weren't fighting, they were still sprinting through the Costco at opening to grab a jumbo pack of toilet paper. Yeah. Where Costco finally went, we're just going to take all the toilet paper, put it in the front of the store, and if you want one, we'll give you the limit of one, and we'll give it to you when you walk in the door. Yeah. Because people were beating each other up with toilet paper, and not like in really bad, like you know, like upscale yuppie Costcos, right? That's why. And if yeah. I have to explain more than that, I don't. I, I, I think you're not ready yet. Morpheus is not coming for you. You can <laughs> just plug back in and, and yeah. I hope the pod stays nice and cozy because totally. that's where we're going. What What do you think about how we can really focus on being just as positive as negative in our impact? I mean, this is the, the core message of permaculture. And so, um, and I think the other piece that really resonated with me all those years ago is that, um, especially in this like social justice kind of woke era that we find ourselves in, there's a lot of people pointing fingers at each other right now. And um, it's, it's like, it's like me making negative remarks about the oil industry. Like I still depend upon oil. Um, And so Mollison said like uh, the people that are, are, you know, shooting bullets and, and making names of people around them, but don't have their own house and garden in order are kind of hypocrites. Um, and so literally like turn off the news um, and look right outside your back door and like, what is it that you can do? Um, and so the prime directive of permaculture really is it. It's like, get your house and garden in order, um, take responsibility for yourself and your children. Um, and if you've got, as you said earlier, a small piece of land, do something with it. If you don't, I, I have students in Calgary that convinced the city of Calgary to lease them 13 acres of land on a brownfield site for a dollar a year oh, um, wow. to turn it into an urban farm. They'd be a great group to get on this show, actually, but on how you take a, a stranded asset like that and turn it into something productive. Um, there is no excuse to not do something. And and so it's a matter of like, what resources do you have? What's your weak link? What do you need in your life? Is it food? Is it money? Is it like whatever? Um, there is literally an unlimited number of resources in North America. It's just a matter of getting creative and changing your perspective on, on the world. Um, and it only takes 3% to change, to, to, to create a paradigm shift. And I think slowly we're, we're, you know, increasing those numbers. Um, and, um, and I, you know, the people that are on this show and the people that are, are paying attention to these types of channels are not victims. They're, they're going out and they're actually taking steps in the right direction to, uh, to make the world a better place by taking care of themselves first, putting on their own airplane mask. And, and in doing that, it's as long as it, um, it, it, again, it tastes better. It's more fun. It's saving them money. Um, people will come naturally when the students, when students ready, the teacher will appear. Yeah. Yeah. I said long ago when I did my 12 tenets of survivalism, uh, modern survivalism, that alter- like, for instance, just alternative energy is for independence, not for saving polar bears. Right. And, and the main reason I said that is not even that I don't believe that we can't have a positive environmental impact that way, but that that's how you get people to do it. Yeah. Right. You want people to adopt alternative energy, make it work really good and make it affordable and they'll buy it. Yeah, I promise you, if somebody can sell a hundred million dollars worth of some gizmo on late night TV with an infomercial to put a thing in a jug of milk so you don't have to open it. I promise you, you could sell an energy solution if you made it work. Right. I mean, that's just it's kind of a no brainer. And we just need to I think we need to be better about how we market what we do. That's why I said don't call 
permaculture landscaping, permaculture landscaping, call it edible landscaping. Call it totally. edible, sustainable landscaping, even though regenerative would be a better word because use the words that the people you're trying to wake up, right? The next Neo, you got to use the words that they understand to yeah. kind of jar them out of their sleep because I think one of the mistakes we get into is we use words, terminology, and knowledge with people who aren't there yet. Like the longer you're in this, you get five or six guys like me and you in a room together. And I don't know, have you ever been in a room full of people that know something you know nothing about, right? And then you just end up tuning out. They're like, you know, like they're ham radio guys and they're talking about the latest transistor or they're in a sci-fi convention. They're talking about some obscure shit you never heard of. We, we forget that that's how we sound. Yeah. Like even the person interested in gardening, they're like, I, I don't know what the, they're using Latin words and engineering terms and things like zones of design. I, 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 and none of those are actually that hard to comprehend, but if you don't know and people just start spitting that out, you're like, you tune out. Like that's what humans do when they don't understand. They assume all oh, these people are a bunch of nerds or geeks or weirdos are wrong and they shut down. And I think we need to do a better job of using the right words to communicate. Not because I don't want to offend anybody because I want them to listen. Yeah. I want words. them to listen so they can learn. Let's hit a few questions, like lightning round, quick style, and I'll let you go. Walt says, do you buy into what all the silver stackers are saying? The new energy revolution will cause a huge spike in silver prices due to the demand it will cause. So I think it comes back to the prediction thing that we talked about earlier. Um, yeah. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. If you've got all your money in fiat um, and you've got a bunch of people that don't necessarily have your best interest in mind, pulling the limited levers that they've got, um, then you're going to end up where you're going. So um, use diversity. And I think that the piece that I like silver is intrinsically valuable because it's used in industrial processes. So yeah. I, I, I own silver. Um, but self-custody, I think, is is where we're going in terms of, of value storage. And so silver is an, an asset that has self-custody, but so yep. does the fruit tree. So does yep. the soil. Um, so does Bitcoin. And so uh, look for assets that you have self-custody that have a chance of having utility in the future um, regardless. I just have some skepticism of anybody who profits by telling you to buy something. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but when they tell you how great it would be if you bought it and they're the ones selling it, you have to ask why they're not keeping it. Totally. <laughs> right? yeah. So I, I think silver is a great asset. I think it's a great self-custody asset. I think it's a great privacy asset. I think it has some limited utility with wealth transfer because me getting it to you in Canada is way different than me exchanging it to my son when I'm ready to die or to my neighbor across the fence. But it has value. It belongs in your portfolio, but I wouldn't go all in on it because somebody on a YouTube channel said to. Gary says, is it all right to use treated wood for biochar? Is an end supply scrap from a side business. It's 90 percent pressure treated. I wouldn't. I wouldn't make biochar out of any chemically treated product. Because the one thing biochar production leaves behind in the production process is all your minerals like copper. And so you, you, you have an arsenic, right? So you have and then you are concentrating that. So think of it like if I had ocean water and I tried to irrigate it, that would be bad. But if I boiled 70 percent of it off and then tried to irrigate with it, it would be worse. So I'm not even so much worried about like toxic ick as I am like you're altering the soil profile in a negative, right? Where what we're trying to do with biochar is alter it in a positive. I don't know how much you've looked into biochar. So do you have anything to add to that? No, I, I, treated wood is horrible. Don't like, unfortunately, I think that's one of those. I mean, maybe there's a way that we can reclaim those minerals, not 
make biochar, but reclaim yeah. them and sell them as a, um, a commodity. Stranded asset, like you were saying earlier, right? Yeah, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't use a biochar from treated wood. I, I wouldn't either, and I wouldn't make biochar out of it. Um, thanks to Jack and Ken Berry, I'm off the metabolic syndrome death path. I, I, I think with, you know, you, you, you've probably experienced the health gains of eating the type of diet we were talking about earlier yourself. Uh, any dude that can go four days without eating. You talk about being non-brittle. You know, Ken often says in his talks, like, if I showed up at your house and said, we got to go, we're going to be gone two days with no food. Are you ready to go? And if you're not, then if the, if, if the crap hits the fan, you're not coming with me. Right. And I think there is some point of getting, you know, non-brittle. But is there anything else you want to say about that type of eating? I think fasting is one of the most empowering things you can do. Uh, it, it Cognitive improvements are, I, my, I think, probably double at the, the double the capacity when I'm fasted, especially on day two and three. Mm. Um, and the reason, the anthropological reason for that is that as hunter gatherers, when we were not eating, we had to hunt. Uh, and so your vision, visual acuity goes up, your hearing goes up, your thinking goes up. Um, so when I have really strategic thinking to do, uh, my best thinking happens when I'm on a fasted state. So try it. And, and uh, yeah. there's some great books on it. Dr. And, uh, Dr. Fung has written many books on fasting. Um, and then like the Russians, this is super cool. They didn't have the, the medical system that we did. They solved almost all their medical problems through fasting protocols. Um, so there's a huge, huge literature on fasting that's just fascinating. And, and it really comes down to like a lot of your problems can be dealt with by taking things away, not by adding them in. I agree. And I think that's one of the things people need to think about is a lot of times when you're sick, you don't want to eat. And then everybody feels like, well, I need to eat. I know, no, no you're, that's your body understanding. It needs to enter a healing phase. And at 18 hours is where you, you is generally kind of the point where you enter autophagy. Yeah where you actually begin to clear out and get rid of old cells, old things, things that are dead that need to be replaced and rebuild. And the alleles in your genes, which are basically like your timer, yeah. they say how long you have. It's like an hourglass for the human being. Mm -hmm. It says how long you have left to live. I mean, literally, that's what, assuming you don't get hit by a car or something. That's kind of your, your timer. And scientists believe for a long time after discovering these things that they only went in one direction. And when you enter autophagy, they actually get longer. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's the thing that like modern medicine has no interest in. And it's one of the most impressive things as far as human healing and hu human health. Totally. Uh, Builder of Castle says a person can save the most oil just by growing a garden, eliminating all the diesel, hydrocarbon based fertilizer, et cetera, used by a big ag. I mean, I don't know if it's the most, but it definitely is a huge amount. If you think what it takes for, that bag of romaine lettuce to get from the uh, valley in California to you in Virginia. Yeah. Right. Like you got to really think about what that looks like from seed to table. Yeah. Totally. Nothing to add there. Okay. K Bonk says Rob's thoughts on cradle to cradle design engineering concept for systems evaluation. That's all you, bro. I don't even know what that means. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what we were talking about, closed loop systems and, okay. and like making sure that if you're going to design something that it's, it's, uh, I mean, I don't have any problem with, for example, with oil sands, you know, everybody loves to call them tar sands and, and yeah. all sorts of nasty names. Um, if we want to develop those resources, let's do it, but let's make sure that we've designed in what we're going to do with the tailings on the back end of it, uh, not create a new Superfund site. Um, and that that's kind of the problem with the, gener the generative um, 
mindset is that, uh, or the degenerative paradigm is that we don't force companies to develop the end end game. Um, they develop the resource and then they go bankrupt and they leave, uh, they publicize the, the unfunded liability. That's the problem. I think we're going there. Um, I'm not sure what the, that path is going to look like, but people are waking up to this thing. And the biggest thing is that when the Irish famine happened, um, there was still a whole bunch of world to move to. We've run out of space to uh, to go to now, other than maybe Mars, if, if Musk gets his dream, um, which, which I kind of doubt. But um, well, I have doubts about it. We'll see. He seems to overcome almost everybody's doubts these days. But... Um, uh, there's nowhere else to go. So we have to start figuring out how to fix the places that we've destroyed. Um, and, and that's kind of, I, I see a, a very amazing opportunity in the future um, fixing places. And, and I think that if we're going to pay engineers, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to develop these resources, um, I, I see a new class of professional uh, showing up, regenerative um, professionals that get paid the same amount of money to fix those problems um, and what will incentivize the creativity that's required to turn these problems into solutions. Yeah, the whole space exploration, colonizing planets and stuff, I think it's cool. I don't think it's a solution. Even if it eventually gets done, it's not a solution to our problem because they're going to go to resource scare plant, scarce planet and try to create resources. Well, you're sitting in resources abundance and destroying resources. Yeah. So until you can work it out here, you don't need to go playing around over there, except that maybe we would learn because you'd have no choice. Mm-hmm. That, that would be the only benefit. Of, but it, it makes me think of a poem by a dude named C. David Hay that I must have read this back in the early 90s. And the last stanza of it is, for as we gaze at distant worlds, mankind has clearly shown he has yet to fully contemplate the beauty of his own. And, and that's all I can think of when I hear this. We're going to make a colony on Mars. We're going to uh, use, you know, some sort of technology to, to make the atmosphere thick enough to hold oxygen. And we're going to have water and everything. And I, I think it's incredibly cool. And I think if we don't kill ourselves, we will eventually be a multiplanetary species. I believe that will happen if we don't blow ourselves up. Mm-hmm. Right. Some people believe if we don't do that, we will blow ourselves up. I don't know. But I think that if you are, especially if you're like in our general age bracket, not your world, right? That's not your, that's, you're not going to see that. You might see a person walk on Mars, mm-hmm. right? You might even see a permanent or a semi-permanent settlement on the moon. Mm-hmm. We might see that inside the, the, the 2030s, mm-hmm. but it won't fix your problem. No. Better start contemplating the beauty that we have right here. And what yeah. we need to do with it is, is my thoughts on, on that type of thing. One yeah. more. Ernie says, how long before you can use chicken poo in the garden? It depends. <laughs> you put it through rapid composting, 18 to 21 days, right? I mean, it, it, if you're going to throw the scatter mulch out of your coop in the fall and not grow anything till spring immediately. So it it, yeah. it, it all depends on what you're going to do with it. But um, personally, I, I have gone to what I call Johnson Sioux-ish uh, composting. I don't build giant frames out of rebar and climb up ladders and dump stuff. We take six-foot rings uh, goat fence that are four foot tall. We put some weed blocker around them and we clean out the coop once a year, do deep litter and clean out once a year and cap it with wood chips and wet it down. And three months later, it's the best compost you ever saw. Amazing. And so I don't, I don't care about speed. I care about quality of product. And yeah. so you have any thoughts on chicken compost poop? No, I think you nailed it. 
Okay, cool, man. Well, hey, I really appreciate you being with us today. Guys, I know there's some more questions came in, but we're going to call it because we're at two hours. Rob, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, it was a great convo. I, I, I hope we can do it again. Yeah, please do. Like I said, when, and I figured out what it was, um, but I can't think of his name now. It was a different Rob I had on. Right mm. after I met you and I had him on um, Kaiser, Rob mm. Kaiser on uh, Grants for High Tunnels. Oh, and it was so close to when we hung out together that in my head, looking back 10 years, that's what it was. But let's not go 10 years again without having you on. Sounds great, man. All right. Okay. All right, folks, with that, real quick, let me wrap up. Let me tell you about my item of the day for you today. I got a low energy product for you. I really do. It's pretty cool, too. And if you're like me and you like to eat keto and you like to eat some veg, you're not all carnivore, but you like to eat some veg, uh, but you kind of miss some things like noodles and stuff, you'll like this. It is made by a company called Vegetti, which I admit is a dumb name, but the product is awesome. If you can operate a manual pencil, pencil sharpener, you can operate this. You take a zucchini, or in my case, Trombuccino zucchini, because I think they're even better, or you can use carrots, all, any vegetable will fit in the daggone thing. And you twist it, it has a, a narrow side and a coarse side, and you can make vegetable noodles out of it. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, because they're freaking delicious. Last night I made some myself. I even put a video up for you in the review that shows you how to use it, assuming you can't figure it out because it isn't hard. There is one thing I want you to know about this. If you look at it, it has these really sharp blades out here on the outside. And you can see it's a, if, if you're watching the video anyway, you put the, the, the vegetable on the inside and you turn it. If you stick your finger in there, it will cut you bad. And there's one very upset person who did it to themselves with an Amazon review that says how terrible it is. There's no reason for that. There's a cap that goes on either end of it for storage, and it has little cleats on it. And when you get down to where it's short, you stick it on there, and you can go all the way. You leave yourself a little nub that won't, won't grind out. It is a great product. It sells for about 10 bucks. Last night we had ribeyes, and I went and took a fresh trombocino out of the garden, made this stuff up, put it in some ghee, which is clarified butter for you non-culinary types, uh, and hit it with a little parm and some pesto at the end. And it was just a fantastic side, very low carb, very low calorie, but delicious. And it's again, it's a $10 product. Now, why do I have this thing? I always wanted a spiralizer. They're giant contraptions made up massive amounts of plastic and stuff. They take up a ton of space. They're not even that expensive. They just take up a lot of space. This thing's about the size of a deck of cards. You throw it in a drawer. It's there whenever you need it. it. I don't see it ever wearing out. Another thing I saw in the review was hard to clean. No, it's not. First of all, it's dishwasher safe. So if you use a dishwasher, throw it in there. What I do with mine, honestly, I have an electric kettle. I throw it in the, in, in the sink, and I take some hot water the next time I boil water, and I just dump it through it, and it cleans it perfectly. So that that's all I do to clean it. Check it out. And remember, you can always support us. By doing your online shopping, beginning where? tspaz.com. That is T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. With that, I am going to sign off today. Tomorrow, I'm going to be back with kind of a variety show. Tune in. We're going to talk about a lot of things going on in the world tomorrow, unless I change my mind between now and then. I doubt it, though. And uh, then we'll have a listener, I'm sorry, a expert counsel show on Friday. I really appreciate you guys. We had a great discussion going on. Parallel to this in the live chat, if you've never checked out uh, a live feed, consider doing that. Just go to tspclive.com. You'll either see the last one or the next one there. You can always kind of go about, you know, a couple hours before noon. You should see that day's live stream. There's going to be a live. Usually there's four of those a week. Expert counsel, we don't do the live. Most of the rest of the shows, we do lives. 
and get in our Telegram channel or group or what have you. Follow me on social media. I always announce it that way as well. And with that, guys, take care. I'll catch you tomorrow with another episode.